Berto, what do you think? Tough or bluff? Racism accelerates aging in black men. <laughs> Tough or bluff? Racism accelerates aging in black men. What do you think? Tough or bluff? Wow. Okay, so they, uh, they're exposed to racism, so then they get stressed. Stress leads to uh, aging. So I'm going to go tough. You're right. It's tough. Whoa. It, research has shown that experiences of high racial discrimination and internalized anti-black bias was associated with the shortest life expectancy. That sucks, dude. It's interesting, though, right? It's like adding insult to injury, literally. Yeah. Well, welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast, everybody. I'm your host, Kirk Honda, licensed professor, <laughs> licensed therapist and professor. Wow, that's a long string of things. My name is Humberto Castaneda. I am uh, kind of a counselor for race relations. So here's another tougher bluff for you. A fear of being too skinny may put some teenage boys at risk for depression. Tougher bluff. A fear of being too skinny. Oh, that's a weird twist on the whole thing. I wouldn't have thought so because you want to be skinny, but if it's too skinny, then maybe boys don't feel like they're muscular enough or something. Okay, I'm going to bite tough. It's true, tough. Boys who perceive themselves as being very underweight, oh. but actually were average weight or higher, reported the highest level of depressive symptoms. Weird. Yeah. This was reported in the journal titled Psychology of Men and Masculinity. Huh. It's a very interesting title for a journal. A very virile tar title. <laughs> yeah. Psychology of Men and men Masculinity. And masculinity. <laughs> so there's a journal called that. All right, you got one? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I, today I'm going, I'm looking at the past of psychology. So it is thought that psychology first originated in Sumeria. Tough or bluff? In ancient Sumeria. That's interesting. Um, I would have said Greece, so I'm going to say bluff. It was Greece. All right, so it's definitely a bluff, although who knows, maybe it did, right? But they don't know. About and it that. depends on how you define yeah. psychology. There is some evidence that uh, they in their hieroglyphs and stuff, that in Egypt they might have had the concept of analyzing psychology. But true, like the uh, understood, everyone knows ancient Greeks definitely uh, had uh, the study of psychology as something that they studied. Right. So that's, you're right. It was a bluff. Interesting. All right, time for bluff. When people suffer trauma, like being sexually abused as a child, they might repress the memory, meaning they cannot recall the abuse as an adult. Tougher bluff. When people suffer trauma, like being sexually abused as a child, they might repress the memory, meaning they cannot recall the abuse as an adult. Tougher bluff. Oh, I mean, I've heard that in pop psychology all the time. So I'm going to say, depending on the age, yeah, I'm, sh I'm sure there's some age, maybe, yeah, whatever. I'm going to say tough. You can repress memories as to avoid trauma and then as an adult not remember those memories. Right. That's the common belief, but it's actually bluff. Really? Yeah. This is a common belief that you can and often will repress memories that are painful to protect yourself from that memory. Oh, my God. I remember, actually. You're right. I, have to, I was five years old. My dad taught me that, and I repressed it. Ah. <laughs> so the idea of repressed memories is generally considered to be unsupported by the evidence. It really? seems like a good idea, and there seems seem like there seemed seem to be some case 
studies that involve that. But when they actually study this and actually ask people, they find that this idea of complete amnesia regarding an event is actually not supported by evidence. Okay, okay, that makes sense. But what about the the idea that, because you know how you don't remember a lot of explicit things before the age of, say, four or five. Some people, I, I have memories up to maybe three, but mm-hmm. but in general, you don't. However, you may have developed personality quirks or phobias or things without really knowing where they kind of originated from. And you might not remember the incident. So that, but right, that's not but the that's, same as repression. That's not from repression. Yeah. So if you're six months old and you're sexually abused, which does happen, <gasps> which does happen, you don't repress that memory. That memory is, goes away with all your other memories that you have at the age of, of six months. So it's not through repression. It's just through the nature of the way memory develops as we, as we age. So it's true that some people choose to forget so, so a little baby might get, might not have any of those traumatic memories? Or would they have stress like in their body, but it's not a memory. It's like, you know. Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know the research on that. I do know some people who were sexually abused as infants and have syndromes as a result of that. Oh, but man. they were also sexually abused later. later. Oh. So I, I, I don't know. It's interesting. It's good. It's a very interesting question. I wonder if you were, I guess it depends on how the infant experiences it. Yeah. Because attachment is very important at that time. And if the attachment is threatened in some way, right. then there would very likely be effects later on. Ugh. But anyway, it's true that some people choose to forget trauma, but if they really thought about it, they would likely remember it. This is this is my experience with people is that they'll say, oh, no, nothing happened to me. But if you really say, well, are you sure nothing happened to you? They would say, well, yeah, something happened. But I don't want to talk about it. Or they choose, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, or, you know, they have essentially when the individual really thinks about it, they know something happened and they might have had years of keeping it compartmentalized and, right. in, and in a box. They know something's in the box, but they choose not to think about it. Right. But if they chose to focus on it, all those memories would come back because that's the horribleness of trauma is that it becomes encoded in, in your brain and it's hard to forget. So, so the movie scene where the hypnotist says, and then all of a sudden, you know, that, that part's the exaggeration. Not only exaggeration, but a complete false, yeah, complete false notion. False. And that idea has been propagated through our culture. Right. And even within the clinical world, there are many clinicians that believe in repressed memories. But when you when science actually studies it, they, they can't find it. And it doesn't make a lot of sense because imagine having complete amnesia about something. Like you literally have no access to something that was important that happened to you, right? It, it, it when you think about it in the in the in the frame of amnesia, because that's what it is essentially. In another word, it, it seems a little absurd because amnesia and it. Well, we have a lot of false notions about amnesia too, right? It's like yeah, all yeah, those yeah, TV right. shows where someone gets <laughs> hit, hit on the head. Memento, <laughs> yeah. Well, Memento actually is. A, oh, it's the short term amnesia. Right? Uh, uh, Memento actually can happen. Um, but actually, Memento, if I'm remembering right, it, that was caused by psychological stress and not head, not a head, not head trauma. Correct? I don't, I don't know. But it, it moved backwards in time, <laughs> right? And so that one was a little far fetched. But um, but that amnesia where you get hit on the head and you forget who you are, yeah. and you know, and then and then you get hit on the head again and you remember everything. Oh yeah, like in the movie where the guy wakes up. It's like, where am I? Who, who am, am I? Who am I? It's like, well, you hit your head really hard, sir. 
And that happens sometimes. There are cases where it happens, but the way that they portray it is is okay. not very. But anyway, this is a highly politicized topic since some people who are hostile towards victims will use this research as a way to discount victims' claim of abuse. Oh, you know what I mean? Right. They'll they'll say, "Oh, uh, I read somewhere that repressed memories are bullshit," I and see. and you just made that up in your mind. I see. When in reality, you know, the that- person the person was abused and. They just chose not to remember it for right. a long time, and the individual is framing it as if they, they they're calling it repressed, repressed memory, right. but it wasn't actually truly repressed and, and amnesic. It was it was uh, just chosen to be postponed in terms of the dealing with it. I've talked about this before in the podcast. The first time I went to therapy, and how uh, my therapist asked me, "What's the one?" Uh, Emotion. If you had one one emotion or one word, I think it was one emotion to describe your your uh, your life or your childhood or your memories or whatever. What would it be? And I I said, oh, happy. You know, happiness. It's like, oh, that's great. And then you know, but as we started talking, I started talking about all these things that were not happy at all. This traumatic stuff. And but those weren't things I didn't remember. They were just things that I chose to not you know consciously have in my foreground all the time. But it, so it was only repressed from talking about it, not because I didn't remember them. Right. But you, you're right that I could have called it, oh, I'm just repressing that stuff. Right, yeah. right. So you had a pattern and a habit of compartmentalizing that memory That's right. by choice. But if you really wanted to access right. it, you, you could. Yeah. Oh, and minimizing it too. Right. Like compartmentalize and minimize. Oh, well, well, sure, but everyone goes through that. Or, well, yeah, but that wasn't their fault or whatever, right? Right. But it doesn't mean I don't remember. Right. It's meaning making or creating a yeah. narrative that was helpful to you. Exactly. For some it's also politicized because there have been many documented cases of therapists, people in my field, helping people recover lost memories, quote unquote, which lead to convictions and humiliations for so-called perpetrators. And then later, these memories are realized as having been implanted by the therapist. So there's there's actually a lot of documented cases of this, and it's been studied. And the whole repressed memory thing, it has a, in my field, at least for those in the know, has a really um, horrible disgraceful, shameful history. Mm -hmm. Because essentially, people in my field implanted memories in children that they were sexually abused by people close to them, which led to convictions. So you could, you know, they found that you can implant memories, particularly in children, because they want to comply and their brains are malleable. And everyone's, everyone's brain is malleable. And and children don't even know what they're saying, you right. know what I mean? And then if you coach them long enough and then you put them on the stand and, you know, the lawyer says, what happened? And the kid says, well, my daddy took this penis right. thing and he put it in my butt and, you know, and... <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and ela- then they think that whatever, that's ela- what I was told to do. Yeah, elaborate... Um, detail that right. no kid would know. Right. But, and it wasn't like the therapist went up to the kid and said, here's what I want you to say. And it's not as if the therapist actually wanted to implant the memory. It's that the, the therapist went in saying, did your father touch you? Uh, show me where on this doll where your, your, your father touched you. And if the therapist believes that right. sexual abuse has happened when it, when it hadn't, then the child says, oh, I don't know, here. And then the therapist says, where else did the, and then, cause, and then the kid goes, oh, that first, that first answer wasn't Right. There's, oh, I see. Even though the therapist hasn't said wrong, the therapist is searching for something. Then, then the kid says, "Oh, how about here?" And <laughs> then, and then, and or he also touched me here. And then the therapist says, "Oh, really? So what happened when he touched you there?" And then the kid says, "Well, um, 
nothing really it just you know it was just it was just there i don't know well can you tell me more and the kid's like oh obviously there's there's the, this person wants more for me and kids have imaginations you know they like yeah. they have mat they think santa claus is real you know right. And wait, so, wait, what do you mean? <laughs> so they just start making up uh, stories until they get that that right. I, the vibe that the therapist is happy, quote unquote, with the response. And you, you do that enough times, eventually you're going to have this elaborate thing, and the kid will be completely convinced that it happened because, again, their brains are malleable. And you know, the therapist never wanted that to happen, but they were tasked with drawing out a story. And I've been in that position myself as a therapist where it's like, look, you, you got to get this kid to tell their story. You got to get them to tell their trauma. And it, you're seen as such a wonderful therapist if you can get a kid to talk about their difficult past. Right. And you're seen as a failure if you get a kid that says, oh, nothing happened to me. I don't know what you're talking about. Right. When everyone <laughs> thinks something happened, you know what I mean? And so you feel good as a therapist when the person finally reveals this difficult thing. And so the kid will pick up on that vibe, I think, and lead to these right. uh, memories being implanted. That's horrible. Yeah. Okay. And by the way, lots of times the kid will grow up to be an adult and give it some more thought and think, wait a second, none of that happened. Right. I completely made that up as a as a as just a silly imagination game. Oh, but that's because he's repressing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, all now, right. now, just one last thing. Having said that, sexual abuse happens all, all the time. All the time. And it's very real. Yeah. <laughs> and there are, and the vast majority of perpetrators never get even accused of it, let alone convicted of it. Right. So I'm not saying that people's accounts should be minimized or discounted. Of course not. The vast majority of victims who voice their past abuse are the 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 few that just manage yeah, to come yeah. forward and actually say something's happening. Yeah, what you're pointing out has less to do with because it, it, it doesn't even have to be about sexual abuse or whatever. What you're pointing out is that there are techniques that people have thought throughout the years may yield secrets locked within the brain. Right. But those techniques may be full of right and may be dangerous. Yeah. Yeah. And that doesn't minimize right. people 30 years later saying my father sexually abused of me. Of course. Yeah. That that I've had many clients come to me right. 30, 40 years later and say, I've never told anybody about this, but my father had sex with me from the age of five until 15. Okay. And, yeah. you know, and I don't, and I don't go, who implanted that memory? Right, you know, right, I, right. I absolutely accept it. Because why would you bring that up? You right, know what right, I mean? Right. It's pretty, it's a very rare case that someone would just lie about something like right. that. Because it's so shameful to the person. Yeah, of course. You know, it's, it's such a, such a black mark on the victim in our society, which is totally messed up, right? right. That for someone to say that, in all likelihood, it very much happened. You know, yep. I mean? they're, they're desperate enough to actually say, to, to admit it. All right. That's my last caveat. <laughs> Um, okay, so the uh, Wilhelm Wundt, Wundt, Wil Wilhelm, Wilhelm Wundt. Wundt established the first laboratory dedicated exclusively to psychological research in 1879 in Berlin. Tough or bluff? Oh, you got me on a thing because I don't. It's all true except for Berlin. I, I don't. I don't think it was Berlin. Was it Hamburg? I'm going to say bluff. It was a different German city. Hey, good job. It was Leipzig. Oh, Leipzig. Yeah. So that's true. It was not Berlin, but everything else was. Yeah. You know, I've been reading a lot of history of psychology, yeah. and uh, it's very interesting. Mm -hmm. And prior to I don't know a few years ago or I don't know, five six years ago, I didn't even know who Wundt was, which is really. Just 
just weird when yeah. you think about it. It's like he he. <laughs> well, is, do they teach like you know in 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 art when you're majoring in art, you have to go through art history yeah. and in music and stuff. Yeah. Don't you? Have, you have to do some history of psychology, or don't you? Mm, no, oh, really. In, in, in some training <laughs> programs, there's zero history, or or weird. they barely touch on it. In in psychology, they definitely talk about it, but it's only one class, and there's only so much you can cover in one class. So. There's just too much to 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 teach for history to be a part of that, but there are those, and I know people that I respect uh, greatly that w- um, really push for history to be more to be a bigger part in the instruction of clinicians because without an understanding of history, you don't understand where you are right now, and when you understand history, you begin to see why you think the things that you think, why there are certain systems in place, certain right. certain psychotherapy technologies, the political implications. It's, you know, it's a it's a very interesting topic and a, a very illuminating topic. It's not just oh, history isn't that I know trivia now. Right. You you realize how the history of psychology in particular is fraught with all sorts of problems and yeah. and fighting and unethical behavior. I mean, just in the 60s and 70s, psychologists were experimenting on humans without their consent. And today, uh, we risk doing that again. You know, right. like for instance, when after uh, the last Iraq War, we imprisoned people in Guantanamo Bay, and the government employed psychologists to basically experiment on ways to interrogate people. Some people might say torture people Mm -hmm. to get them to talk. And there was a lot of infighting in the psychologist world. And we ended up adding a ethical code stating that psychologists do not do that sort of thing. Right. So without an understanding of culture, without an understanding of history, without an understanding of the politics, you might do things blindly. Sure. Like, like, torture people <laughs> yeah anyway no no that, that mean that but that makes sense because and you've seen it in a lot of movies too like the cia will bring in this hey here's the psychologist who's going to try to decipher hannibal lecter or something you know but if you're not careful yeah what are you what are you doing are you traumatizing these people are you, you know? right and a lot of people because they have heard these stories from history that happened have a very poor view of my profession sure they haven't learned that we've learned from our mistakes Mm -hmm. they still think that we like to mess with people and we you know will manipulate people and uh, in reality in order to do human research you have to get approval from people who have a interest in protecting the public and a lot of experiments do not get approved on that like spider-man do you have to get approval from Spider-Man? Why? Because he protects the public. So. Oh, yes. Okay. Batman. So you got another one? Hugo Munsterberg. Hugo Munsterberg began writing about the application of psychology to educational theory in the 1890s. Hugo Munsterberg began writing about the application of psychology to educational theory in the 1890s. To educational theory. Huh. I have never heard of him and my knowledge of educational theory is not good, even though I'm a professor. <laughs> it's always actually funny how I like to I like to remind people, ironically, is it ironic that yeah. 
prof- the professors in my field, almost none of them have had instruction on how to teach. Really? That's funny. Isn't that weird? <laughs> that is weird. <laughs> like we've all been trained to be clinicians. Sure, yeah. But for instance, me and a number of my colleagues I know of have never taken a class on how to be a teacher. Right. Like the kind of thing you'd get if you're mastering, getting a master's in teaching or something. Right. Okay. Like if you're teaching math in high school, you yeah. have to take a lot of classes on how to, how teach. to, how <laughs> to teach something. They don't just teach you math. They teach you sure. math, but they also teach you how to teach. Right, right, right. Isn't that weird? That is weird. <laughs> it's terrible, I think. <laughs> I mean, like maybe that's the case in colleges a lot though, right? Oh, yeah. Like you don't have to know how to teach. Just do you know math? Okay. <laughs> right. I mean, I had a math teacher at UW that I'm sure did not take a class on how <laughs> to teach or at least if he did that teacher should that other teacher should be fired but anyway um i'm gonna say tough because i am just taking a guess you're just taking a guess okay it's a bluff john dewey did educational theory in the 1890s hugo mustenberg began writing about the application of psychology to industry law well, and other fields, so maybe he did also do, but mostly industry and law. I see. Yeah. Yeah, I know Dewey did. John Dewey. Tougher bluff. Even though there is little evidence for repressed memories, 35% of therapists and counseling psychologists believe in repressed memories. Yeah. Even though there's little evidence for repressed memories, 35% of therapists and counseling psychologists believe in repressed memories. Tougher bluff. Well, based on, on the previous conversation, you say 35%? I mean, I'm going to say, sadly, bluff. I'm going to say it's like 50%. Bluff, it's 70%. 70%? Wow. Yeah. Is that changing? Is that... Uh, it's probably decreasing, but rather slowly, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was... I was... Man. Well, it, you know, it's like the right brain, left brain BS. Right. If I bet you anything, if you asked a number of clinicians there would be a sizable percentage that still believe in the right brain, left brain crap. So, you know, because... Well, yeah, I mean, and that's been popularized like crazy. Right. It's I re- still do it. I'm like, oh, I'm going to train. Today I'm going to... Because, you know, like, it, that's one of those uh, theories or hypotheses that when you think about it, you're like, oh, since I don't use my left hand often and I've been told that my right brain is creative... If I spend some time today with my left hand, obviously I'm going to become more creative, <laughs> you know. Yeah, the the whole actually when you learn about the brain, the whole notion makes no sense when you actually learn about the way the brain operates. And we barely know how the brain operates now, but we know right. enough to know that the left brain right brain things make, makes no sense at all. Uh all right, tougher bluff. of research-oriented psychologists believe in repressed memories. 30% of research-oriented psychologists, these are supposed to be the cream of the crop in terms of knowledge about empirical evidence, believe in repressed memories. 30%, tougher bluff, what do you think? Based on the last number, I'm going to go bluff. 50 on this one. It's tough, 30%. Okay, well, that's not as... Well, no, that's still bad. It's still bad. That's a third of researchers. Yeah. A yeah. third of people that really should know better yeah. believe in a false notion. Uh, that, that is that, crazy. That, and, and it's not just a false notion. Like left brain, right brain is sort of innocuous because it's like I can't really think of a situation where a clinician believing that would actually harm somebody unless you were a neuroscience scientist or something or a researcher. I could see it harming your work. But for a therapist to think right and use that language with your clients. It, yeah. yeah. But to believe in repressed memories as a clinician, that could actually 
harm clients because you might actually participate in the implanting yeah, of memories. That's right. Or you might be a, an expert witness in a forensic case claiming that repressed memories are supported by the evidence. And the jury might make a decision based on your... Right. And they have. This has happened. And there was actually some really famous cases in California and Washington State in the 80s. Repressed memories were all the rage in the 80s. It was a very interesting. It's another reason why we should understand history. All right. You got one? Yes. Uh, in Asia. So we're moving over to Asia. China was opposed to any form of testing as part of their educational system until the 6th century AD. Wow, it's so confusing. China was opposed to any kind of testing in their educational system until the 6th century AD. AD. Yeah. God, I have no idea. Tough. So <laughs> it's definitely a bluff. It's got to be a bluff because it says literally the opposite. China had a long history of administering tests of ability as part of its educational system. Um, Going and, back to? Uh, like they have... Well, actually, it doesn't say how far back. But so it might not go as far back as the six. It might go back right back to the sixth century AD. That's true because <laughs> they have examples of some of the examples from the sixth century. So you're right. Maybe maybe you're right. <laughs> but they weren't opposed to it. <laughs> All right, tougher bluff. Remembering a personal story of achievement can increase your IQ by three points. Again, what? remembering a personal story of achievement. So sure. they experiment on people. And they give an IQ test, and they measure it, and then they ask another group of people, and they say, hey, uh, I want you to focus on point in your life when you actually achieved something that you're oh, proud of. Oh, I see, I see, I see. And then they give an IQ test, and when you compare the two groups, the group that remembered their personal story of achievement, their IQ was tested at three points higher. Okay, I misunderstood at first because I thought, like, you know, one group of people, they're like, you know, hey, do you remember any time you achieved no, not really. And oh. the other group was like, yeah, totally. No, no, right, no. no. Okay. So this is like they say, hey, remember something you achieved. Yeah. Now keep that in mind. And then the other group, they didn't. Right. Okay. I don't think they said keep it in mind. Or, I think they just said focus on, on it okay. for a bit of time. And then they gave them the IQ test. You know what? I, I would say, uh, sure, they probably get a small, tiny bump. Three points sounds about right. Because uh, here's my, my, my hypothesis is that uh, it primes your, since some of the IQ portions are memory oriented and, and focus oriented, Maybe it primes their focus centers and their recall centers, and they get a little bit more ready for the test. That's and, my hypothesis. Interesting. My guess is in the control group, they had them focus on something innocuous, so that would disprove oh, that point. I but I don't know that looking at what I'm looking at right now. It's bluff. It's 10 points. What? So you can cheat at the... <laughs> so next time I take an IQ test, I just need to focus on the time I did really well on my IQ test. <laughs> and this is this is average. Now, you actually score score extremely high on your IQ test, so it probably... But I can gain a whole 10 points, dude. But to do that would be really and in hard. In fact, since I did well on the last one, I'm just going to focus, focus on, on that, that. achievement. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is what here? Well, the point seems to be that like your, your positive... Belief maybe uh, has an impact on yourself, doubt and things like that. And Absolutely. Yeah. They've studied that time and again. They've, they've looked at, particularly around sexism in education, when they tell young girls that they can do math and that math is for girls. Right. And they test their math skills. They test much higher than when they say math is for boys and girls aren't good at math. Uh, and then right afterwards they test self-esteem has everything yeah. to do with achievement and performance and 
quote unquote intelligence. Sure, yeah. Oh, that's so it's interesting when you think about. I mean, a ten point swing's big for an IQ. Big, test. and guess how lower Hispanics and Black people tend to score than white people. But that's because we're dumb, Senor. <laughs> I mean, it's seriously, about, it's about ten. That, that it, makes sense. It's about ten points. Right. You you tell a group of people, hey, you guys. You know, for years and for, you know, it's like, you guys aren't as good as us. But here, take this test. <laughs> okay. Right. So it's it's a reason why we really need to take care of people. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Be on. Well, actually, you know, that is that is an interesting thought, though, that, like, how much time, maybe nowadays, you know, I, granted, I haven't been in school for a while, but I don't recall my schooling taking a lot of time to make me feel good about myself. But I bet, given that you were probably a good student, that you got affirmation from somewhere that you were smart or good enough. Well, or surprisingly, though, I was a good test taker because I could pay attention in class and remember things, but I never did my homeworks. So I actually I started. I always find it funny when foreigners put an S at the end of homeworks. <laughs> really? Is that? I mean, is that a thing? I don't know. I, I have a foreign client who says homeworks. Mis tareas must be because in Spanish it's plural. Oh, really? Mis tareas. <laughs> well, in other case, me homeworks. I didn't. I didn't. Here's the thing, though. I like. I so I did fine. Like I struggled like crazy in first and second grade, especially with math, because I had moved from New York to Columbia, and they were way ahead. So I couldn't keep up. So they bumped me down from second to first grade mm-hmm. and put a tutor. And I hate. I couldn't do it. Right. By the time I got to long division, I was getting a little better. And then when I started getting abstract, I was awesome at it. Right. Especially because I spent time at home. And then I paid attention to class, so I could memorize really easy. So I normally got good grades on the test. And in earlier years, a they don't give you as much homework, and b my dad made me do them anyways. Right. But as I started getting to sixth grade, where I could fluff my way through basically like yeah i did my homework you know whatever and i didn't do my homework it started catching up to me so by the time i was in ninth grade i was i was getting really bad grades because of homework because it's the kind of thing where like did you turn in your notebook you were supposed to work on these last six months well last night i tried to cram but i got depressed that i hadn't done it so no Mm. you didn't even turn it no i haven't turned it in you know and so it got really bad um and then i moved up here for high school and it was kind of a reset so i did well I did way better in high school than I did leading up to that point. But but also there were some things about high school here. I was back with my mom, right? I was with my brother. So I, I was like, I got a moral uh, boost there, you know, morale boost, I mean. And and also the choice that they let you have in high school up here was kind of neat because I picked classes that I, you know. Um, I, anyways, long story short, what's weird is I wasn't a good student when it came to the things that they grade you on the so, most. So maybe you didn't get enough affirmation yeah. back then. Well, for... and I, I think I had a little bit of ADD. I couldn't sit down and just do my freaking work, you know? Yeah. I couldn't sit down and do my homework. Well, that's another thing that I see in my world is the idea that there's there's something actually physically wrong with someone's brain that makes them unable to focus in a way that will help them in school is dubious. When in a lot of cases, what are you, you talking about? You came, <laughs> you came from a difficult childhood. I mean, it wasn't horrible, but but there were difficulties. Yes, and in your society right. in in Bogota, right? Yeah, definitely. And lots of stress, right? Lots of stress, violence, you know, deaths, uh, divorce, conflict. Well, when you do that to a child, they have a hard time focusing at, at school. That's just you know. Imagine yourself. You know, your your mom dies. And then the next day you go to work. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're not going to be tip top. Well, when you have a child that has a continual 
life of difficulty and loss right. and pain, they're in a perpetual state of yep. of difficulty. But then someone comes in and tests them, and they meet meet the criteria for ADHD yeah. or ADD, and then they give them Ritalin and right. say, "Well, there you go." <laughs> while completely ignoring they're ignoring the environment, <laughs> the the situation that led to the that's crazy. Well, and, and to your point, actually, about the feeling good or like self, what is it? Self belief making you do better in IQ tests or things like that. The one thing I really actually did get all the time from the, well, anyways, from my dad was positive affirmation. And, but at least about the things that he felt were important, which was mostly math and science was like, wow, good job. Oh yeah, great. Oh, you're so good. Oh, you're so smart. I was never as smart as you. Oh, you're, and like, so I actually started feeling like a little Einstein around my dad. I'm like, well, I must be so, I must be a fucking genius, you know? And that actually must have helped because I did great in math. I did great in math tests. I, I mean, I had a natural uh, genetic inclination toward it, but well, whatever, it, you know? it raises an interesting question because was it the genetics or was it your father's? Actually, that's a good point because my, fa- my father was not good at it and he had horrible, like I didn't, I, you know what I learned? Did I talk about this on the podcast? He was, I just learned this this last year. I never knew it. He was horribly bullied for, Years and years and years and years growing up mm. by the, some kids down the street. And, and you know, he, he it was just like there's a lot of factors at home and things like that. So I think he grew up with, with a lot of self-doubt and self-whatever, uh, yeah. right? Yeah. And so he that probably didn't help him be good in, in his classes and no. things. And yet he still managed to somehow get to his, his Columbia University psychiatry and child psychiatry degrees and all these things in spite of that. But, but he obviously carried those wounds, you know? All right. Anyways, well, if you have any thoughts on the matter, you can go to our website, psychologyinseattle.com, and go to the Contact Us page and send us an email. Or you can email us at contact at psychologyinseattle.com. I'd also remind the listeners that you can donate. It's been a while since anyone's donated. Thanks a lot. Thanks for nothing, listeners. <laughs> uh, by going to our podcast website, psychologyinseattle.com, and going to the Support Us page and clicking on the Donate button. We spend a good amount of money on the equipment and whatnot, and you know it'd be nice to you know get some reimbursement for that. Since you greedy listeners out there just listen without paying for anything, um, unless you're really poor, then it's totally cool. But for you rich people out there, come on, uh, distribution Re- of re- income. Redistribute the income. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't think of the word. Redistribute the income. Yeah. Listen to the white man commanding you to redistribute the hey, income. Hey, I'm I'm a person of color. The I'm, half I'm white ha- man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I actually got in an argument with a with a half Chinese woman, half white, that we were people of color. Who was people of color? That I, I was I was I was pointing out that we were you know, I was like, Hey, we're we're you know, you're a person of color and she says, No, I'm not. I'm half Chinese, half white. I'm not a person of color. Oh, I see. I guess if yeah, that's that's a weird statement because basically it really depends which part of the world you're in, right? Well, and it depends on your definition of person of color. Because you, if but, you live in China, a Hispanic person certainly a person of color. Person of yeah. But a Chinese person's just a Chinese person living in China, <laughs> right? But in America, <clears throat> in the states, right. if you are not white, you are definitely. Not, a person of color. You are definitely not white. <laughs> That's right. You know what I mean? If you're not all white, you're definitely an other. Take it from me who's just a shade off of white. I'm, right. I'm definitely considered another often, you know. 
and you're you're way off white. So. I'm way off white. <laughs> well, it's funny. We came back across uh, the border recently from Canada, uh-huh. and you know, uh, the guy. Every time I cross the border, man, I always have a little bit of anxiety. <laughs> and sure enough, the guy looks at me, and he's got my passport in hand. He's like. And you know they they do this on purpose because they train them to try to catch people. In they stopped us once. And, oh yeah, remember that? Yeah, but so the, uh, yeah, you're right. Well, the problem was we had a Korean, a, a Mexican, a, a Mexican, Colombian. a Mexican citizen. Yeah, with, a, with like <laughs> yeah, with, with like expired with whatever. like a weird like oh, a yeah. weird. Oh yeah, remember? Yeah, like he had a weird sort yeah. of thing. Well, and like ten kilos of coke in the trunk. <laughs> yeah, and then a Colombian, <laughs> and then and, a, and the then dead me, body the, strapped underneath. And, <laughs> yeah. No, but anyways, but even this one, you know, totally not. And stuff, but uh, he's like, uh, w- How did you become a citizen? Because right? it says on my passport I was born in Bogota, right? Uh-huh. So he knows that. And, and I was like, Well, I mean, I took the test in 96. He's like, No, I mean, like, what, you know, he was like, How did you get to this country? You know? Uh-huh. And he says it kind of mean. I'm like, Well, sorry. I, I don't know. I came up when I was 15 to live with my mom. He's like, Oh, okay, fine. You're free to go, you know. But I and I don't know if they do it on purpose. Like, hey guys, you need to be a little bit. Well, you know. I I know that it's their job to, in a very short amount of time, suss out whether or not you're very nervous or you're totally relaxed. So one way to do that is to ask random questions to keep you off kilter and to and uh, to and to not make you feel comfortable. I feel like if I were a criminal, though, I'd I'd have an easier time, like. You know, like if, if especially Maybe. if you're that kind of criminal. Maybe, but imagine you did have, yeah, you know, ten kilos of coke in the in the trunk. You would be sweating bullets, right? If it's the first time, sure. Yeah. And even the fifth time, you couldn't avoid anxiety. Sure. And by asking you questions and being a little pressuring, yeah. they're trying to gauge your response. They don't really care what the answer is, right, right, right? Because it's not like they can verify your answer. Sure. They're just seeing the way you answer the question. Police officers do this too when they pull you over. They'll ask you like really innocuous questions to see if you're drunk. Yeah. Because they're trying to interact with you. You know, oh, they, sure, they can't sure. say they can't walk up to your vehicle and say say the alphabet backwards, you know. They they walk up and go, "Hey, where are you going? Where are you heading?" Right. You know, they're 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 sussing out. They want to see the way you respond. If you respond like, "I don't know. Well, why why do you ask?" you know, <laughs> then then they're like, "Oh, interesting, you know. I, I don't have a dead body in the trunk." But, but see the funny thing is that's how I respond anyways. <laughs> like I I, I But do... that's how everyone responds. And so they they know what that okay, looks like. Okay. I think they know the difference between how innocent people look scared and how non-innocent people look scared. Right. At least that's the notion anyway. I mean, I'm so extreme. Like, so a, a week ago or something like that, I was driving up north on I-5 at midnight. And on oh, no, sorry, on 405 at midnight. And you know that part of Renton where it's like really dark? There's not a lot of lights and stuff like that. And I, my tire exploded like like it thrashed itself and, and actually it started s- slower than that because i was listening to the radio and i heard like you know when you go over an unfinished road you know I, I was like what the hell is that sound so i turned off my radio and all of a sudden bop and like i start dragging to the right and i'm like oh shit and like managed to pull over luckily there was a shoulder but i was two lanes over so i, I still had to make it over and i parked as close as i could to the side i was like oh my god and it's pitch black there's no like lights there or anything the only lights are from the oncoming truck Trucks coming at like 70 miles an hour, right? I'm like, oh, God. So I got out. I had my phone. I didn't have a flashlight, which is stupid. I have my phone light, right? And I look, and the tire was decimated. Basically, apparently, when they, when they get a hold bad enough, and because of the heat, it just tears all around it. And so it was like nothing was left. Was it an old tire? 
Yeah, it, it had the treads were worn. Yeah, so it was also my fault for that. But anyway, so I I was like, shit, what do I do? Um, I I know I have the stuff to change it, but it's a little risky here. So at first I tried calling AAA. Right? They're like, yeah, well, we could be out there in three hours. I was like, okay, <laughs> three hours? Yeah. So I'd be there like till three a.m. Right? Wait, <clears throat> that's because you have AAA. I have AAA, and oh. they were totally booked that day. Apparently, cars overheating left and right. Really? So you know what? So I was like, well, that that's doesn't kind of work. A worthless uh, program. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could have called a regular tow truck. Yeah. So I was like, well, I can change the tire. It's just scary because I have no light or anything. So I'll do it. But then the guy's like, well, just call 911. There might be a patrolman. He can shine a light or something. So yeah. I did. I called 911. Cop car show up, shows up like, you know, five minutes later. I'm he, already. Um, and he comes up to you and he says, how'd you become a citizen? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, but this is the thing, right? He's totally nice guy. He comes. He knows. Um, he offers to help, but I'm already doing it or stuff like that. But I felt so nervous, dude, because I'm sitting there. I'm like, oh, God, act normal. Act normal. I'm like, why act normal i am acting normal i just but i'm in my head i'm like what if he's like what if he sees through your facade what facade i'm i'm not a criminal i kept thinking like he's gonna ask me like so why are you here at midnight what are you doing you know and like what were you doing i was well i was trying to hide the bodies but (laughs) no i was driving back from tacoma from seeing some friends from high school oh that night yeah yeah and like it was in fact it was the had you been drinking well i had had a drink at at dinner but i hadn't like i wasn't drunk at all okay and it was but were you worried that maybe Uh, that might have been part of it too that like what if he smells alcohol in my breath or something but i was i mean i was i was changing a tire perfectly well right so i wasn't like stumbling or anything it was but you never know like your blood you never know your blood alcohol and there's something inherent about like authority with me that I'm like yeah totally oh god I'm gonna go to jail I'm gonna go to jail oh totally <laughs> totally have you do you have nightmares sometimes where you're like being chased for crimes you didn't commit or did commit I don't know do you I do just the other night I had a terrible one where it's like and in my dreams I always like escape the back door of whatever house I'm in and I'm like okay I'm gonna go in the bushiest areas of the neighborhood and just go and keep going and I'm not gonna stop but somehow in the dream they're still behind me like no matter how far how fast I go they're always behind me so stressful <laughs> what do you think that symbolizes oh man i that's a good question it's like um persecution but why like why am i like someday my crimes will catch up. oh you know the only thing i can point point to was those feelings i had as a child when when i when i would hide things from my dad that you know because i didn't want to get in trouble and it was I, I, i've talked about it in the podcast how i like had this letter he was supposed to sign and i hid it under my desk and for like a year, I was stressing out of my mind every day coming home thinking, today's the day he's going to find it and my life will be a forfeit. Why didn't you just throw it away? I don't know. I always, I always. I don't know. Okay, because this, this <laughs> happens a lot. third grade. This happens a lot. I, <laughs> I talk with a lot of families oh, and a lot God. of people and, and they'll tell me about stuff like this where the child will hide stuff in the room and never dispose of it. And it's, and I always think like, actually, do you want to get caught? You know what? No, but that's a lot of great questions rolled up because you know what? This could be an indication of a lot of things for me. Number one, I have this thing where I procrastinate on things, right? So in my mind, what is probably happening is, well, listen, I'll eventually, I'll eventually have him sign it. So you're in denial of the reality. And by the way, by the way, the reason I had to have him sign, you know, what did I get in trouble for, right? I got in trouble for basically, uh, I got in trouble for making faces after I got an answer wrong in class. (laughs) 
And, you know, I got an answer wrong and I grimaced. I'm like, God damn it. And the teacher thought I was, oh, no, no. One of my quote unquote friends, actually, she became a friend of me later, but she was like, teacher, teacher, that boy's making faces at you. Right. And the teacher was like, who? I don't know. One of them, too. And so like two of us go up to the front. Well, you both have to go to the. And I'm like, but I was just it's this expression. It's like, well, you both have to go sign the book in the principal's office. Oh, my God. And and I sign the book. Yeah. And we're third graders. Like they treat you you like you're sign the book. What there's is a thing there's this big book you had to sign what is it what's the book it's a discipline book and it, and if you sign the book the letter gets sent with you home <laughs> by the way you were the principals and it was dark it was this dark office you're like sign the book it sounds so nazi it's, it's like harry potter or something yeah yeah and then so then we get sent the book of despair you get sent i get sent home with this letter that my dad has to sign i guarantee you of course if i had explained the situation to my dad not only would he not have been upset but he would have been upset with the school and be like what the hell you don't listen to kids or what instead i'm like oh god okay now keep in mind like like did my dad used to like hit me and like, no well well, if I, I might did fear his anger because I he, might you analyze know. you for a bit. Your parents did. <clears throat> your mom left you. Yeah. So there's always a question mm-hmm. as a child if you did something wrong. Oh yeah. It's really interesting how strange to us as adults children think when things like this happen. I think it's because they live in such a small world. You know, their world exists yeah. in this. You know, they don't understand politics or. Hmm big adult people things, they understand very few things. And one of the things they understand very well is being a bad boy, Mm. being a bad girl, right? And if something bad happens to them, one of the, you know, key hypotheses that children will have is, well, I must have been a bad boy. There must have been something wrong with me. That makes sense, coupled with probably the fact that I I certainly, because even though my dad never like hit me or anything i could hear him i'm sure yelling at my mom when they were still together and i saw his anger when he would get angry at whoever or whatever so there's probably like also like i don't want him angry right and you're right it's like well i didn't do anything wrong didn't even cross my mind it was like well shit now i now i gotta get this thing signed i'm screwed like i can't tell him if i tell him i mean i'll probably literally die right so i'm gonna hide it and then tell him later right (laughs) and then dude seriously for a year and he eventually found it yeah. Like a year later and he was and and he was and you know he told me years actually recently he told me he always knew, he knew he had found it like almost right away. Oh really? But he was waiting for me to tell him. Oh really? So like he waited like he I like this is cruel. He waited like forever. In my mind it was a year, who knows how long it really was, but it seemed forever. <laughs> and he was finally like, "Hey, his, what's this?" And I was like, "Oh, that and I had grown like a like a it had been a while so I was like oh it wasn't even my fault and blah 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 but he was like well why didn't you you know like we had the lying conversation and then he beat you and rejected you well that's why I have these scars yes that's why you have the dreams <laughs> yeah that's why my arm is missing that's an interesting story it, it yeah all right well let's go to the last bit of our show if people are interested then stick around if you're not by all means don't stick around but we're going to talk about some music in some other episodes where i'm by myself i'll talk about some of the music from my band and i thought it'd be interesting to talk with birdo about some of the music from our band back in the day so let's go to a song that the that birdo wrote that we played in our band called Missionary. It's available on Spotify and on iTunes. Let's go to that, the beginning of that song, and then Berto can tell us about this composition and the production and that kind of stuff. So right off the bat, what inspired that that intro there, that... 
<laughs> you scared the cat. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Uh, okay, so I do have to say, that I, I believe the intro I added uh, after I had the, the core of the song already kind of written because I love that, like, that little synthy, bassy, dirty sound. And, um, and there was something about it where I was like, this song is, because ultimately we'll find out what the song is about, but it's got this like dichotomy of, of longing and pain and that pain you feel when you do, uh, when you're a teenager and stuff. So I th- just thought like that, that kind of summed it up for me. It was like, dirty, dirty, dirt, 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 uplift, <laughs> you know? Okay, I'll play that bit again. <laughs> yeah. And I just want to point out that that is not a, that is a live recording. A lot of, um, whenever you hear keyboard sounds in recordings, it's often by sequencer or computer. You, you yeah. program it in. Yeah. But that was actually someone playing the keyboard right. live. Through a key, uh, guitar amp. Oh, through a guitar amp. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, right. like we put it, we patch it through. We found the right sound, patch it through, and then that little bend up is with the pitch wheel. Right. So this whole album that we made together was like that. Yeah. There was no sequence to anything. What was the guitar? What's what's your guitar amp again? Oh, it's a Lone Star Special. It's a Mesa Boogie Lone Star Special oh, Mesa with a special Croc skin, red red Croc skin cover that I love. Yeah. So so then I'll play the beginning again, and then we'll, we'll go into like the the theme, and then. We'll go into a little bit of your singing bit. So tell us about the lyrics. Yeah, so, you know, one thing is I used to, I've been writing melodies. Well, I've been writing songs since I was like 15, you know, um, but it's been such a interesting long journey for me. Uh, one where at various different times I thought I knew what I was doing. But um, when I first started writing in high school, my first song was uh, actually, it was pretty catchy tune, but it was, it was kind of like a a new wave sounding song with keyboards and things like that. Um, and the lyrics had some, some themes in there that had some promise, but they were still like the kind of lyrics that you expect a 15 year old to write, right? And then I went on to, I remember going on this trip to Mexico and I, I had this little pad with me and a pencil and I wrote all these songs as I was going down and the, and I was just writing the lyrics. And oh my God, it was like just dribble, just like stream of consciousness dribble, you know? Um, because I thought, well, you know, I need to be really poetic 
and deep, you know, and I have to talk about deep things. And so, but I didn't know what deep was or, or anything. And, I, you know, some, some people, some musicians, some poets, they just have it right off the bat. Like, I don't know, you know, like they just, for some reason, experienced enough pain or have some natural knack for it or whatever. They start writing poems and they sound great and they're what it is. With poetry, I mean, it didn't start that way. It was like we were not friends. No, no, I, I, I'm the same way. <laughs> I, I'm a, I'm a composer of music. I am, right. I am not a compo- I'm not a poet. And it's really weird how songwriters are expected to be both. We're expected to right. be both brilliant with music with rhythm, melody, harmony, chords, song progression, right. uh, feel, performing, yes. singing, playing, and, and words. <laughs> and you have to be a poet. Yeah, I yeah. mean, think about how many really good poets you right, know. Right. Well, and that's why, you know, you have some famous people like Elton John that only does the music. Right. And Bernie Toppin does all the lyrics and right. he's brilliant. Right. Well, so, so the thing is, by the time that we were playing in this, in this band in Missionary, I, I had actually been through so many cycles and I had actually gone to camps to learn how to be a better songwriter. Is Missionary a Christian band? <laughs> no. Um, people often ask people us that. People often ask us that, yeah. So, th- so by this point, I had actually started using uh, certain techniques to write my songs where it was like, you know what? Instead of, uh, instead of trying to like build up this elaborate scenario, just what are you talking about, right? Just like tell it like you would be telling it to someone, to a friend. And so that was kind of how I was approaching this one. And in my mind, the concept was fairly simple. It was um, <clears throat> that fear that we, I think we all experienced growing up of when we start having to talk to the opposite sex. After, you know, you're kids, you just play around. But that's, after a certain point, you turn into a teenager and you're like, God, I got to go ask that girl to dance or that boy. <clears throat> I like that boy. And, you know, girls aren't even encouraged in our society to, like, reach out. But we all have that fear. And, uh, you know, every guy can relate to, like, oh, who am I going to ask to the dance? Every girl can relate. How, will I be asked to the dance? Or or can I even ask a boy, you know? Um, so that was the core concept. It's like, you know, that fear of there's this, in this case, it was a girl that I long for and i want to talk to her so bad but what am i going to do i what i what do i say what should i do where do i start what should i tell her about it right and then the friend is just telling like don't worry about it just talk to the girl <clears throat> just go just go and talk and you know the, the the dark reality is that that one probably wouldn't have worked out but if he keeps trying at some point it'll work you know and if and he then, doesn't try they won't work that's right yeah all right uh so let's go on anything else well let me ask you so in the song, I sang harmonies. That's right. And I played the guitar part. The guitar part always was interesting to me during the verse, well, especially because like there's that in- so there's that intro with the keyboard. But then when the when the song theme kicks in, there's this little thin keyboard playing what will become the melody of right. the chorus, right. which I like doing because it like the Beatles used to do this too. It's like just a hint at it too. But then you're playing this grounded dun 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 dun, which I like because it's like listen, something's gonna happen, but not yet. You know, uh, but yeah, but then, but then, like the the rest of the song, uh, it, then it opens up when the singing starts. It opens up. It's almost like a spring moment. Whew. Yeah, this is another. Yeah, um, and also um, the guitar part. I always thought was interesting because it doesn't really follow a standard guitar. It's almost like a keyboard part for the guitar. If that makes any sense, right? Like a guitarist like myself would never write a guitar part the way that was written. But you actually wrote that on guitar, right? Well, I, I write most of my songs either on a guitar or a piano. Yeah. Every now and then I'll get an idea while playing the bass, like Aquarian, which we could talk about some other day. Yeah. But normally it's uh, 
I'll, I'll just grab a guitar and figure out some chords. And so you and wrote like, this guitar part on the guitar? I don't know. No, I don't. I mean, it sounds the way rather we used to work. Yeah. But the way we used to work was I would give you the chords and you would kind of find a few times I would tell you like, like in, um, there's a couple songs where I was like, Hey, play this part. But, um, cause I don't actually, I don't actually write guitar parts that much you know what i mean like i normally come up with the chord sequences so you're thinking i came up with the guitar part at at the very least you varied whatever i gave you a bit because whatever i gave you was probably more just like the the chord sequence and and Hmm. and maybe a rough recording of it you know what i mean maybe yeah because it's always interesting and maybe it was if i did write it it was because of the joy of writing music with for someone else's song right you get to live in someone else's world which forces you to do something different than what you would normally do right 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 and so anyway let's just go to that So you can hear the the melody on the keyboard part, and then my guitar part, and the is the bass coming in yet? Dun, 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 I have dun, a dun. basic bass going, yeah. yeah. It's funny. I never realized that was the melody of the chorus. Yeah. I always just thought it. I actually thought and, and it was the melody of the verse. I thought you were introducing the verse, but that's actually the chorus. That's interesting. Yeah, and it it, it's it got a little more minor sound to it. Yeah, it's yeah. definitely a minor sound. Yeah. Yeah, you had to because I can't even play an arpeggio like that. You can't? <laughs> oh, I mean, I could practice it but it doesn't come natural for me i don't sit there with my guitar at home and come up with an arpeggio are you sure i normally just go chunk and chunk and chunk and chunk and chunk uh, yeah so i might have i might have said hey can you can you play something like uh, it? but i certainly didn't hand you that arpeggio <laughs> huh. interesting it sounds very pretty though yeah. it gives it this like like you said it's almost like a little key with like a harpsichord or something but the so the bit that is different comes up oh, okay. soon I swear to God, uh, okay, okay. I swear to God, you wrote that okay. part. Okay, you might be right because that is the kind of thing I would do. Because I like, I like varying the because it's it's almost like it's the third time around. Yeah, and it's and it's uh, I could see and it's that a, it's a modal change. Well, yeah, I I, I might have given you the the core idea, but but it, pretty much every time I gave you something, you made it sound better. <laughs> so yeah, but I you're right that that is something I would do there. This was a fun song for, for us to play, I think. So this was our number one. This was this was the song we led with. I have, well, we started with All oh, no, For We started for All, all For you. you, yeah. Because it was like kind of that nice interest. But you know what? I have the fondest memories of the video we made for this song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it was a, a great well, so day. It was just one night where it was the whole band, and we just filmed all day and all night. That That will go down in my memories of my life. As one of the best days I've had. Yeah. Because it started off kind of early-ish. You guys came over. Yeah. And we started, uh, we started recording the, 
um, I mean, we had the, the track already, but we started recording the video. Yeah. And, and so we all got in the kitchen and we did different things and we played this and we had the theme and then I, we all put, I put on my jacket and we, and it was great. And we spent all this time. And then after that, we went to this like party by the water. Yeah. Right. And we all excited. And then we went to like, uh, a Celtic, a Celtic bayou place where it had Irish music, uh, it at, um, oh, actually, no, my friend was playing there. Remember my friend? Yeah. Uh, he's a German, uh, musician and he yeah. was playing with his yeah it was a band uh, jazz band yeah it was a ja- it was like a it was like a new orleans jazz yeah, band that's right and they had horns and you know big drums yes. and, and they could march around and we were all dancing to it and yeah. it was great but then on the way back we were all singing and we were singing to the songs yeah, yeah, and yeah. we filmed part of that too and right so the whole oh, video man. includes footage from that from yes, the whole from the whole experience yeah Really fun. Yeah, that was good. It was a um, calm before the storm. Yeah. So do you remember first writing the music to this song? Um, I think in this case, uh, I you know, because what, what, what happened with this one is I went through, and this happens to me a lot, I went through several versions of it because sometimes I'll write a good sounding verse and then the chorus isn't up to snuff and then I'll work on the chorus. Then, I, then the chorus goes to a new level and then I realize, yeah, that verse doesn't quite work yet. And that happened in this song. In fact, I workshopped this one down at my music camp. This was one of the ones I, I workshopped because I had, I, when, I, when I finally got to that chorus, I remember I was like, oh, that's a good chorus, you know, talk to the girl. But the verses, uh, the, the previous ones I had, which I don't remember, they were just not quite as good. And so That was always something I really respected about your writing was that you were willing to rework something right. from the ground up. Right. For me, when I write, or at least you know, traditionally for me, once I write something, it's it's, it's what it is. That's what I don't go back and change it. In fact, yeah. uh, I worked with a drummer once that asked me to. Ch- he always loved this one song, but he hated the pre-chorus, and he always wanted. He's like, God, you got to change that pre-chorus. And I was like, <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. And so I sat down to change it, and nothing felt nothing felt right. Felt right. Like I just, I was just like, funny. You, I told Chris, the guy that was on the beach for the party, I told him, you're just gonna have to deal with it (laughs) but 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 your your way is so much better because you know the beatles did this all the time you listen to these early versions right and you 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 say oh that's interesting and i'm so glad they changed that because the 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 ending version is so much better i have i have had times where uh like the worst or best depending how you look at it i have this one song i've never fully finished recording it but um it it has I, I came up with this cool intro and it was with keyboards and stuff and I didn't know where it was headed and then I came up with a chorus and I was like the chorus doesn't match at all but the chorus was really neat it's uh, called Time Out that's what it's called and the chorus is like we need a time out out of time I'm really worn out you know it's like this kind of thing right and by the time I was done with the chorus it, o- it almost was a little a little wheezery or something I was like oh I kind of like this chorus really a lot but it doesn't match what I have now so what I did is I said all right I'm just gonna write a new a totally different musical part leading up to the course so I wrote it in a completely different style and then it became like this reggae thing and I was like well that's interesting and it sounded neat but again totally. I did it three times and so like the third one 
I thought matched the best. But then I, I was left with these other two versions, and each one of them had their own appeal to me. So I, to this day, I have all three versions recorded in, in my in my house. I'm like, I kind of like all three of them. <laughs> <laughs> that would drive me nuts. Yeah. But I, the, by, by the way, but the chorus is the same exact chorus. Oh, all that's three funny. Times. I don't think I could do that. I think it would <laughs> feel like I was butchering my own yeah, song or yeah. something. It yeah. does feel that way too. But 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 no, I think it's better to do it that way. You know, just because to me, the the thing that I often tell myself to motivate myself to be more like you is what's the chance that my first pass on a composition is the best but and, and sometimes the firsts have their own charm right right and so sometimes i have had the the opposite problem which is in fact you i know you've seen me do this a few times is you overthink i overthink and then at some point i lose whatever the hell the thing started right. with like yeah. one time i don't know <laughs> if you remember with aquarian uh-huh you introduced it to the band yeah and you gave me I, I had my guitar and so I just started playing this part and it was a it was a harder, grungier part and more active and I was having a blast uh-huh. just playing the hell out of this this guitar part. Oh yeah, I remember this. And yeah. the ending guitar part was was similar in in, sure, in, just, in but it was really toned down. It was da 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 Right, 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 right. Rest, 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 right. rest. But the the original was like da 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 and we played that song <laughs> right over and over and over again and we were rocking we were having fun right. and you're singing your part and we're, we're doing all this thing and then the next time you brought the song i'm like oh man i i can't wait to play that song again and you had pared down <laughs> my guitar part to this to the shell of what it was originally. <laughs> sorry, I never forgot that. I was oh, always sorry. like, I was always like, there was that magical night with this song. Oh no! <laughs> and I've never been able to relive. Well, that. it's funny because what what happens is, uh, remember when we played the previous version, the one you're referring to? Yeah. And Carlos and all his Mexican friends, they loved that version. Oh really? Yeah. So when we changed it, which I'm probably biased, but I do think the change version was the most, the more uh, pop palatable. I guess like it's hard for me to remember right. but but anyways but when we changed it they still liked it but they're like oh man what yeah that other one was even better yeah that know? was that was so this is even this <laughs> even typifies the point even more we had recorded the song right worked it changed it right. refined it practiced it re- uh performed it right we had fans yeah. from another country <laughs> yeah. who liked the song yeah. and then you changed it yeah because you were still not I, I george lucas did <laughs> 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 well you know what though actually and this this bit me big time but what happens is every time you introduce people not not every time often when you introduce people into your creative circle they want to get their fingerprints all over it <laughs> yeah. and so i remember i took one of my songs from a previous version of missionary it was called she's on own you, you probably remember it but but the version i recorded um it it's kind of harsh in its message because it's like hey i'm done with this significant other and it's mostly her fault at this point and she's on her own like that was the message it's kind of harsh right and if you listen to the lyrics i take only a little blame in the in the case most of it i dump it over right and it was something real happening to me at the time and that's how i felt but whatever the case may be that's how it, but it, but it was a good song and it was and in fact it was it was I, I got it um placed as an intro for an episode on a TV show in Canada right not huge but it was something right that's huge yeah i mean to, was, to have one of your songs yeah get played as the intro to a TV show yeah right that's huge and it, uh, so so because of that 
I thought, well, this is a, this is a song I have in my pocket. Okay. Well, I went down to my music camp that year, and that year I had been selected to do a special thing where they would record one of my songs with special studio musicians and all these things, right? And I brought with me a song that I had written precisely for that, which mixed. I had this vision at the time of mixing merengue and salsa beats with uh, American music, right? So I brought, I wrote this song and I brought it down with me, and I had a rough recording. And I went, and there's this producer guy, and he's like, I play it for him and he's like well it's pretty good but it's it's very complex and rather than working with me to like simplify it a bit or see what's good about it he's like what else you got and i was so <laughs> happy to bring this thing down because that's the sound i wanted to go for and and so i started playing my other songs just, and- just as a side note as a person who was in that producer's shoes before i have heard some of your compositions before and just had the exact same reaction i was just sure. some of your songs i'd be like holy crap that is complicated <laughs> and which, which is fair right it's fair to say that's complex but the way i look at it is me as a person who's actually done uh both professionally and in music even try to teach others about things like you don't slash their their thing down at first right you you see if it can go somewhere you try to workshop it there's sometimes where something can't get workshopped, right but But just to reject it to reject it and actually this song actually had a great chorus a really strong chorus which they even said oh this is a great chorus but anyway so i started going through my other songs and we get to she's on her own he's like that's a that's a hit well, I know, but I already recorded it at like a studio. I already paid money. In fact, so, well, we should do that one. And they convinced me to do it. But then not only wow. did they convince me to do it, but he's like, but you're going to have to change the lyric. I'm like, why? Well, it's just, it's, it, you're not, you don't come off as likable here because you're singing kind of mean lyrics. And I'm like, but that's the, th-. so he actually convinced me to turn it into this vanilla uh, song about, about like me liking someone. Uh. And so like, and then it was so bad. I, I got so messed up that when I went to perform it later that week, Hey Jude, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I love you so. I love you so much. <laughs> I, when I went to perform it, I didn't remember the lyrics. I, I got so stuck. It was a terrible performance. Yeah, know? that's a tragedy. It was. You're yes. too nice. Well, I was trying to be accommodating with this guy because he knows what's best. But instead, I wasn't true to my vision, you know? Yeah. And uh, it's just silly. Well, so, so the point is sometimes you don't want to revisit. That's right. I see. And it's hard to know where that line is. So in the pantheon of your songs, where does this one fit? Talk to the Girl is one of the favorite songs I've written, although it's not one of the most. Uh, I have I have many other songs that are way more personal like and, and some somewhat uh, painful, actually, because there were real experiences in my life. This one was, right? I mean, I, I can certainly relate to it, but I wrote it more universally, not about that one time that really happened to me or whatever. So as a result, I, I don't like have that, that super emotional connection of like, oh, shit, that's that one time I really talked to that girl and now 20 years later, that's my wife. That's not the case, right? However, musically, I'm super proud of it. I think yeah. it's really strong chorus, and and man, that was a hard song to to for me like to sing and to get right because it's yeah. I was going to ask you like because your uh, your voice is particular in this yeah in this track. It's sort of shaky. Yeah, because I'm singing at the end of my at the time anyways, the end of my range. Okay, but it yeah. seemed like you were kind of going for an effect too a little bit. That, no, it was just it was a hard song. It doesn't for me sound to it doesn't sound weak, shaky. It sounds yeah. vulnerable. Vulnerable. Shaky. No, I, I okay. I definitely was going for that because the whole point is like you know I, I I'm like what should I do? I'm trying to open myself up to my buddy. My buddy is giving me the confidence I need right, to hear. talk to the girl. I 
guess it's kind of your pretty voice. It's the cl- yeah. This is my quote unquote pretty voice. This is you singing like me. Yeah, M- mostly I sing like Rick Springfield or something. <laughs> <laughs> well, the most regrettable part about this song is that you had me sing one line from it. What? And at and at the time. <laughs> So because it's like a song where you're just like, and then my fr- and, then and then my he, and then he said, and then I sing the line, and the problem was was at the time I didn't really think about how it sounded. I should have oh, recorded it differently, <laughs> or I should have, you know, I'm singing your line, so yes. it's a little hard for me to sing. Right, and I think I just did it one take or something because if I listen, and we listened to this yeah, album yeah, yeah. hundreds, <laughs> but. In you know, as time has gone on, whenever I hear that little passage, out. I just think like I sound like a stuck pig. So <laughs> let's go to it. I don't think it sounds bad. <laughs> Tell her. No, I mean, like, I could have nailed that so much better than uh, I did in that. Rec- I mean, I guess it's not that bad when I listen. Matter. I mean, it doesn't sound that bad when we. <laughs> no, no, no. But no. in my head, it just no. sounds so bad. To me, it was honestly. What's funny about it is what I like about it is that I could hear I could hear the friendship through the song, uh-huh. and especially with the video, it almost sounded real. Like these two teenagers, like yeah. Like, like, dude, just go talk to the fucking girl. Yeah. yeah, it's funny because like a good portion of the video is us basically acting out. Yeah, yeah, you're pushing me, and you're yeah, it's like, come on, that's uh, hilarious. All right, well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. If you're still listening to us, you're one of the rare people that actually enjoys listening to us talk about music. So thanks for that. That does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us. Please take care of yourself. We should do a spinoff show just on music.
of glances across the room just to be crushed. Okay.